As we come now to God's Word, you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel in chapter 15. If you bring your own Bibles, I would imagine by now the book just plops open to this book. As the crease is in there. If not, make a good crease, and next week it'll pop right back. That's 2 Samuel chapter 15, and before we pray, or before we read, would you please pray with me? Father, this is your word. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Help us now to see what's true here by your word. Help us to treat it with reverence and love because these are things that you deserve. Would you guide our understanding now and draw us close to you, our God? But we ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is 2 Samuel chapter 15. I will begin in verse 13, and your bulletin says a long section. We won't read the entirety of this, just a few verses. 2 Samuel chapter 15 will begin in verse 13. And a messenger came to David, saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let's flee, or else there will be no escape from, for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. And so the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. This is God's word. Now, I want this morning, with God's help, to cover the entire rest of chapter 15 and even a good bit into part of, of chapter 16, but we're not going to read all of this. And that's not because uh, we're, we can't handle a long reading. I know we can. That's a mark of maturity. Um, but it's because these events uh, can be confusing to read straight through. It reminds me a little bit, if we had read the whole, thi the whole thing, of reading uh, Dostoevsky, you know, the crime and punishment guy. I know throwing that out there makes me sound pompous and, and way smarter than I am. It's, I'm really not that smart. Uh, but I mentioned Dostoevsky because he's a Russian author. And so uh, it's translated into English, but he wrote it in Russian. And so the character names, the names of all the folks in his books, sound unfamiliar to my English ear. Uh, we've got Raskolnikov and Razumihim. See, I had to write it down because I can't even remember. I can, I can barely pronounce it. And it's tough to keep all the names straight in that narrative. And so uh, when I read his books, sparingly, I have to write them down to keep track of them. And so this chapter is similar to that. We, we see a bunch of unfamiliar people enter the scene. Uh, we've got guys like Ittai and Zadok and Zeba and Shimei. 
Boy, that's a bundle of names there for children. Uh, and it's just easy to get jumbled as to who is who. And so that's why these sorts of things, uh, the chapter here that we're focusing on, are sometimes better suited to study than to a sermon, which, just as a side, I, I trust you do those sort of things, that, that you're studying the Bible either in groups or on your own, because if all you do is listen to sermons, if your only contact with the Bible is at this time on Sunday mornings, you will be missing a whole lot of God's Word. We're students of the Word of God. These are His words to us, and it's worth digging into them, even if sometimes it takes some effort, it takes a little bit of sweat and thought, even if sometimes we have to pull out a piece of paper and write down the names to keep them straight. So that's just an aside. For now, we won't do that. Uh, for now, we're, we can get the broad strokes of what's happening here. We know, if you've been here with us now, that King David is fleeing his home in Jerusalem because his son Absalom had started a coup a conspiracy. He started to take over the throne. He was the self-appointed king of Israel in this neighboring city of Hebron, but still within the nation of Israel. And it says here at the beginning that the, the men of Israel had gone after Absalom. And that's talking about more than just the citizens of Israel, although many Isra Israelites joined Absalom. But this men of Israel more likely is a reference to the bulk of Israel's military. Absalom took with him in the coup this military force now to be reckoned with. And so as for David, the current king, he knows he's being taken over. And so he leaves. He leaves Jerusalem. And we see some join him in his escape, but we also see some that he sends back into Jerusalem, and he does that actually to send some moles, some spies, which gets really exciting later, uh, but they're going to spy on Absalom at home in Jerusalem. And also as he leaves, we see some who bring David uh, food and supplies to show him support as he leaves, but there are others who curse at him, who call him a worthless man, and who throw stones and dust at him as he goes. This is the gap that's developing now between King David and his son Absalom. And you can see the magnitude of the rift that people are, are choosing sides, teams are being picked, battle lines are being drawn. And after a decade now of a slow build to this point, things are moving real fast. You can see at the beginning of the section we read, as soon as the messenger comes to David with the word about Absalom's conspiracy, David says, we need to go. We need to go now. We need to go quickly because he is coming. And so that's what David does. He gathers up all his family, all of his servants, all the people in his court. Uh, he leaves uh, his household under the care of just a few concubines, which are like wives, except at a lower status. I know that's troublesome. We'll talk about that later. Uh, but uh, the rest go with him now, and, and they move all the way to the far edge of the city of Jerusalem. And there they convene, and eventually in the section after the, that, the one that I just read, they go to the Mount of Olives, 
which is about a mile outside of the city. And from there, eventually, they'll head to the Jordan River, which is about 20 miles away. But just as they leave from the Mount of Olives, at the end of chapter 15, Absalom, with his crew, comes marching into Jerusalem. So they have just narrowly escaped. We know that this is not David's first rodeo here. David's no uh, stranger to fleeing. In fact, in his younger years, uh, when he was under the first king of Israel, King Saul, uh, we see this happen back in 1 Samuel chapter 19. You don't have to turn there, just a few verses. 19, beginning in verse 10. And Saul, he was the king then, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But David eluded Saul, so that Saul struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, so that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you don't escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. And so Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. And this began many years for David on the run. Now, this situation that he's in currently is different than that. Because now Saul is gone and David's king. David's supposed to be the one in charge. David is supposed to be the one in power. And now the person who threatens his life is his own child. That's a whole new level of fleeing. Before Absalom had started this hostile takeover, he speaks with his dad before he left to Hebron, and David's words to his son, Absalom, before Absalom left were, go in peace. You can feel the painful irony there as war is brewing. And in fact, these words of David to his son, go in peace, are the last words he'll ever speak to him. Because from this point on, Absalom and David will never see one another again. Because by the time this war is over, one of them will die. Even now, the people of Israel can feel the gravity of what is happening in their nation. As David's leaving the city, you'll see in chapter 15, let's see, where is it? Verse 23, it says, And all the land wept aloud as the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on into the wilderness. It's like a sad parade as they weep as David and his crew goes through the city and beyond. And then David himself, the king, does not hide his own distress. Verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. Now, I want you to pause for a moment and imagine this scene. 
the king of Israel is walking up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he walks. Walking not across a red carpet, but barefoot across the rocks. And not walking with his head crowned with honor, but with his head bent and covered. These are open signs of intense mourning. This is what he has come to. This is what his house has come to. This is what his kingdom has come to. David here is completely humbled, stripped of all his kingliness. Gone is all his dignity. Gone is his sense of rule and power. And gone is his home. And you have to wonder, in this moment, what is on David's mind here? Because David has a lot of time to think. It's a long 20-mile escape to the Jordan River. So what do you think about in those 20 miles? Is he wondering how he got to this point? Is he pondering the consequences of his forgiven sin from years long ago? Is he searching his heart, his mind, his life for what he might have done wrong or whether he could have done it differently or what he should or should not have done? What is he thinking? And when he reaches the edge of the Jordan River, Verse 14 of chapter 16, this is how he arrives. Verse 14, and the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. Hmm. Part of that makes sense to me. I mean, the weary I get. I mean, he is probably physically exhausted. That's a long way, but emotionally exhausted. Maybe you felt this way over the past several weeks. It's just exhausting to look at all of this. I feel weary. But then it says, and there he refreshed himself, which to me sounds like he had some Gatorade and maybe like animal crackers, a little, you know, a granola bar or something that's mashed in his back pocket. That's not quite uh, what the refreshment means. The Hebrew word here that's translated uh, refreshed literally means, and David breathed. He breathed. This is a drink then not just for his body, it's a drink for his soul. So what's on David's mind here? The author of 2 Samuel does not tell us exactly, but David himself gives us a window into his thoughts through poetry. Big, powerful, manly king writes poetry. Uh, you remember back all the way when we began this series through uh, this part of Second Samuel, 
When we started the journey through uh, the life of David and Absalom, we began not by reading in 2 Samuel, but by reading in the Psalms. And we we read as our very first one, Psalm 3, which if I can get there, uh, begins that David titles this song, A Psalm of David When He Fled from Absalom His Son. That's where we are right now. And now that we've spent all of this time following David's life and Absalom's lives, if you go back and read Psalm 3 again, do that on your own time, you will see the psalm with new eyes. It sounds different now that we know everything we know. When, when, when David starts by saying, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him and God. But this is not the only psalm that David wrote during this season of his life. If you turn to Psalm 63, you can read with me if you wish. Psalm 63. The title of this one is a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. This is during the time that he's king, so almost certainly this is uh, in reference to the events that we've just read when he's fleeing his son Absalom. And as we read this whole psalm, and I want to read the whole thing, it's only 11 verses, we can handle it. Psalm 63, as we read this whole thing, I want you to imagine King David writing this psalm in the season that he's in, a season in which he's been weeping barefoot with his head covered. This is now what he writes, Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land when there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword, and they shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. In the midst of the wilderness here, David refreshes himself by turning his heart to God. And these are not just empty words. These are not just vague superstitions that God's on my team because I'm the king after all. 
uh, David back in 2 Samuel, when he leaves Jerusalem, some of the Levites, the priests, try to come with him and take with him the Ark of the Covenant. And David says, no, no, go back into the city. Take the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. He says, if I have found favor with God, God will bring me back here and I will dwell with him. But if not, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. In other words, David says, God will do what is right. David here trusts in God. In the midst of these incredibly difficult circumstances, his faith in God remains. How? How can his faith remain? Now, at this point in a sermon, some who are maybe a little more seasoned than I am would say, go be like David. Go get some faith, and then you'll be good. Go trust in God. And there's a sense in which some of that is true. Of course, we want to have a deep, flourishing faith in God. But that, I don't think, is the point of the author here in 2 Samuel. I think we are supposed to read all that's happened and be flabbergasted by the complete devastation of the circumstances. We see a barefoot, weeping king, and yet somehow faith remains. We are to be dumbstruck at how on earth that could possibly happen. Perhaps you know to some extent what David's experience has been like. You know the sort of devastating situation that leaves you barefoot and weeping. And you may wonder whether that situation is maybe the result of, of, of just struggle that you have to learn to bear, or perhaps it's the result of some sin Maybe sin in me, or, or maybe it's the effect of the sin from someone else. And, and some of these can be good questions to ask, but whatever it comes from, whatever the source, you know that in those moments, in those seasons, in those years sometimes, you can barely take a breath. You can barely find refreshment. It feels like faith in God is impossible. And yet, faith remains. Through all the pain, through all the sorrow, through all the anger, somewhere deep within you is planted a seed of faith. Faith that says with David, O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water and so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory and because your steadfast love is better than life my lips will praise you. How does that sort of faith happen? All of this says more about faith than it does about us. 
Actually, it'd be better to say it, all of this uh, says more about Jesus than it does about faith. Because we know, according to God's word, that the foundation of faith is not in circumstances. The foundation of faith is in Jesus, always. The foundation of faith is not in circumstances. The foundation is in Jesus. That's why the author of Hebrews uh, comes at it like this, uh, what we call the hall of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer doesn't call it that. We think we're clever when we call it those things. But there's this list of all these prominent people in the history of the Bible who stood by faith, and it's in Hebrews chapter 11. And and, and at the end of it, after all of these lists of people that we recognize, this person by faith did this, this person by faith did this, and at the end, they're all pointing to Jesus. So the writer gets to chapter 12 then and says this, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so slowly and let's run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The author here describes Jesus as the founder of our faith. Some Bibles translate that in all sorts of different ways. The the author of our faith, the source of our faith, the pioneer, I think one says, of our faith. You get the idea. Jesus is the one who leads faith. Jesus is the one who brings that faith into being. And not only is he the founder of our faith, Jesus is also the perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the one who brings that faith to its fullness, who brings it into completion. So when it comes to faith, Jesus is the one who carries it all along. From the beginning to the end, from the starting gun to the finish line, from life's first cry to final breath, from foundation to completion and every step in between. This is how the flicker of faith can remain in us, no matter how small. So breathe. Take a breath of refreshment. Because even when we're fleeing the kingdom barefoot and weeping, it is Christ who holds the torch of faith that lights our way. And while you might grow weary, tired, Christ remains strong and holds fast to your faith. We know from the life of David that that faith in God is not necessarily easy. I mean, a 20-mile walk to the Jordan is a long way to go. And and faith in God does not mean we necessarily just sit and wait on him. I mean, at one point he said, we got to get up and go fast. To just sit around is not necessarily faith. Faith, in fact, can actively flee. 
And we also know that faith is not always pretty. When David's crying, I can guarantee this is an ugly cry. And there are times in which the Lord may humble us in order to strengthen our faith. But through all of that, it is by faith that we push aside the sin that clings so slowly and run with endurance the race that he has set before us. Because we know that Jesus holds our faith secure at the very right hand of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your strong hold on us. Help us not to faint or to grow weary. Help us not to look mainly or primarily at our circumstances, but Lord, help us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter and carrier of our faith. You're a good God and we do trust you. Help us to trust you more. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.